Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Lynn Smitherman. Dr. Smitherman is the Vice Chair of Pediatric Education at Wayne State University School of Medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and her medical degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. She completed a combined residency program in internal medicine and pediatrics at Wayne State University affiliated hospitals and did a chief residency year in pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Michigan. She is the former director of the pediatric residency program at Children's Hospital of Michigan and is now focusing on creating a longitudinal pediatric curriculum at the undergraduate medical education level. Dr. Smitherman is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and is the immediate past chair of the pediatric section of the National Medical Association. Representing the NMA, Dr. Smitherman served on the steering committee of the AAP Pediatric Research in Office Settings to improve minority representation in clinical research and on the AAP's task force to address bias and discrimination, which led to the AAP's policy statement on the impact of racism on child and adolescent health. She also serves as the AAP's District 5 Diversity and Inclusion Champion. Dr. Smitherman is an academic general pediatrician whose research interests include medical education, curriculum development, social determinants of health, and diversity and inclusion in medicine. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Smitherman. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing, Leah? I'm doing all right. I so appreciate your time today. I know you're super busy and um, I, you have a lot to share with us, and I, I'm just so grateful for your time. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's just dive in. I wanted to talk about first just a real kind of introduction about how you found your way into pediatrics. Well, you know, it's um, kind of interesting. I was one of those weird kids who knew they always wanted to be a physician. Um, exactly what type of physician, I did not know early on. I think that um, by the time I made it to medical school, I pretty much knew that um, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more people-oriented. As I toiled, toyed a little bit with the idea of radiology, my grandfather was a radiologist, but you know, I didn't like not having that much interaction with people. Um, my first clinical rotation was internal medicine. It was okay. Then I did surgery. I love surgery. Didn't like the surgeons, but I thought the procedures were cool. But then when I got to pediatrics, you know how everybody says they have that aha moment, and and I did. You know, I just felt it, it was just a nice rhythm for me that I really enjoyed. But interestingly, I did my residency in med peds because my original plan was 
to do a uh, fellowship in um, adolescent medicine. And I thought MedPeds would give me a better background to, to do that. And it did. It was a great program. I felt very prepared, but recognized halfway through that I really hated internal medicine, really hated internal medicine, like a lot. So um, I just stuck with pediatrics. I actually did a chief year in pediatrics just to kind of negate all the internal medicine I'd learned over the four <laughs> years. And, um, and, and, and here I am. And, um, and it's just like I said, once I got into it, it was a nice rhythm for me. I just felt like, you know, very comfortable. I felt comfortable talking with uh, kids of all ages. I felt very comfortable talking with parents, even before I became a parent. And, um, and so that's pretty much how I am. It was just, you know, one of those things that I, I just knew from the beginning that I was going to enjoy. Well, I think that kind of that staying open is really important. So for any uh, medical students or residents that might be listening, you don't have to know exactly what you want to do. I mean, that's the point of having rotations. And I like surgery too, but there was no way I wanted to do five years. <laughs> and I, I actually wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology and do home births because mm-hmm. I had worked with a lay midwife as a med student going to people's homes and witnessing births. And then I saw the disasters in the hospital and just mm-hmm. thought there is no way that that would work for me. And at the time, the obstetricians were pretty unhappy with their lives and the pediatricians were not. And I don't know, I love pediatricians they are fun people to hang. So I'm oh, on yeah. the same page as you. And I did did not like internal medicine either. I just thought these people have way too many problems. (laughs) You know, the, the hope that they're going to get better is difficult. And the list of medications is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the thing about pediatrics. And I think you're right. It's the hope that even though I have several um, patients with chronic illnesses, there's always that hope that they're going to do okay or that I can impact their quality of living um, so that however much time they would have, it's going to be good quality. I would totally agree with that sentiment. So you are a pediatrician in Detroit. And now you also serve as the American Academy of Pediatrics District 5. So that's Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Ontario, the diversity and inclusion champion. So what's that about? Well, you know, it was kind of interesting. I have been involved with the National Medical Association, oh, for almost 20 years now. And within that organization, it is a... um, National Medical Association organization um, for mostly African-American physicians. It was uh, founded in 1895 um, because at that time, physicians of color were not allowed to join the other major medical organizations. Um, So um, I became involved about 20 years ago. And part of that, I was um, academic pediatrician, Wayne State University and Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. And um, so I'd gone to my first meeting and met a few people that I'd known from medical school in various different institutions across the country. And I got invited to a, a, to the business meeting for the pediatric section. And they were talking about collaboration with the AAP's pros committee, which is pediatric research in office settings. Um, and somehow from there, I wound up on the steering committee uh, representing the National Medical Association. So again, that's been about almost 20 years as well with 
that organization. And then uh, through that and other various um, work groups that I've been with, task force and committees, I was um, approached by uh, Teresa Holtrup, actually one of my colleagues here in Detroit, to look into, they were um, looking at increasing um, diversity and inclusion within the academy, and that each district was looking for a champion. And she asked if I would be interested. Um, And I said, sure. Uh, So I threw my hat into the ring. And the next thing I knew, I was recruited into that role. And I might add that you do an amazing job. It has been really eye-opening. And I think the work started internally with the AAP and has since exploded into looking beyond our own doors, our personal experiences as pediatricians, but now our patients, our communities, our country, as far as what's our role. So let's talk a little bit about the AAP's history and racism, and then some words about restorative justice and some of the recent statements and bylaws referendums. Yes, it actually started, well, probably way before um, 2019, when the policy statement came out regarding the impact of racism on child and adolescent health. Actually, I was involved with a work group that met, started in 2017. Uh, Dr. Joseph Wright uh, led up um, the task force to address bias and discrimination. So I was able to participate in that. We came up with different recommendations and suggestions um, that um, went up to the board and along with the task force on. diversity, um, I think it was diversity and inclusion, maybe. All of those came into being, which led to that policy statement. Um, So I think that that um, was really one of the things, the kind of jumping off points that let the academy recognize that, yes, there's these problems going on. We have to make sure that we're addressing the needs of all of our patients. Um, And then when the academy started looking internally to see what their history had been like, then they uncovered some things that were not um, very pleasant um, in terms of how they um Uh, treated the first two African-American pediatricians that applied for membership to the academy. And it was, I think, some of the leadership felt um, a little um, embarrassed and taken aback. But the bottom line is that we have this information, we have this history. I mean, if you look at U.S. history, you know, I mean, there's several examples all over the place. And one of my favorite uh, quotes by C.S. Lewis is that, you know, you you can't always go back to um, the beginning, but you can start where you are and move forward. And I really appreciate the Academy's willingness to like, look, this is part of our history. This is something that we don't like, but we are trying to make sure that from this point, onward, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that everybody is accepted into our organization. And to the point that now I even think that um, within their bylaws, there is a statement stating that they cannot discriminate based on, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, you know, uh, abilities, disabilities, the whole bit, which I think is, is absolutely great. Yeah, I, I, it is embarrassing. And some shame in terms of what happened. And it's hard to believe that people were treated that way, probably not to people who are African American. But Mm -hmm. I think when we're looking at ourselves, you know, as pediatricians, and, you know, we're here for kids, but to believe that we treated colleagues like that. Um, But hopefully now to 
you're right. You can't undo it, but to make it right. And I, I think it follows the principles of restorative justice that, oh, yeah. that you move forward and make amends to the, best of, to the best of your ability. Yeah. And I really credit the AAP's leadership for really wanting to take a stand and to move forward. I think that they have done an amazing job. And um, even to the point of maybe getting probably some criticism for some of the stands, uh, for the stand that they've taken. And I think that's brave um, for an organization to do that. And it's also you know, I feel very proud to be part of an organization who actually was the first national organization to put racism in a policy and its goal to dismantle it on, you know, on their front. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. That is is something to be proud about. Well, help us understand the meaning of some terms. and, (laughs) And these are pretty big subjects and topics, but I think the meaning of and definition of racism, implicit bias, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah, so let's start with bias. Um, So bias is basically the feeling, it could be negative or positive um, in your own mind um, towards, uh, it could be a group of people, it could be a thing like colors, for example, it could be, you know, against anything. And we all have biases, because we are all human beings. And we all have um, ideas and thoughts of things about what we like and what we don't like. So there is the explicit bias, which is the bias that we are all very aware of that we have. And the example I love to use is my bias against the color green. Um, You know, vegetables and everything are wonderful, but if I had to pick a clothing choice, I would not pick something green. I would pick, you know, another color that I like better. So that's an explicit bias. I know it, I own it, and I move on. And then there's the implicit bias. And the implicit bias sometimes can be a little more difficult to recognize. A lot of times it operates on an unconscious level. And, um, you know, and so, um, and you can't help but have implicit bias again, because when you think about us growing up in our environments, whether it's with family, whether it's within the community, whether it's within school, we are fed all sorts of messages from people um, that we look up to, people that we love, people that we trust. And so all of their opinions that we're listening to as young children, you know, all the way up help find, uh, help um, define our ideas in terms of what we like and what we don't like. And, and as I mentioned, sometimes we are very aware and sometimes not. So implicit bias um, at times can be a little bit difficult if we're judging individuals based on that implicit bias that we might not recognize that what we have. So the example, again, that I use, if I think about the color green again, even though I know there, I have an explicit bias, if I'm interviewing somebody and they come in, two people are coming in, same credentials, and one is wearing a green outfit and one is wearing a red outfit, and I love the color red, am I going to um, judge the person who's wearing green differently, a little bit more harsh, because I just have this bias that I know about, but can it sink into my unconscious that I'm making decisions? And, you know, other people, if you're walking down the street and you see um, uh, a young man who might be wearing dreadlocks and whose clothes are a little bit baggy, 
or you're going to feel just threat. You might not acknowledge that there's a threat there, but there might be something inherent in you that says this person might not be safe for me to be around. I'm going to cross the street. or I'm going to hold my, my tote bag a little bit tighter or something like that. So implicit biases can become a little bit um, um, dangerous over time um, if people feel threatened and they act upon that. So that's bias. When we talk about um, discrimination, um, again, discrimination is an act um, against somebody for a particular reason, um, whether it could be the way they look, the way they dress, um, who they might um, um uh, who their partner might be, whether it's a heterosexual relationship or not, or what their gender might be. So discrimination is an act, whereas um, prejudice is actually not an act, but again, it's a it's a, it's a thought, uh, it's a thought process uh, against uh, something. You might have a prejudice against peanut butter, for example. Some people might not like peanut butter, not because they're allergic to it, but they just don't like the taste. So there might be that prejudice, which again is similar to bias. Now, when we talk about racism, Racism has two components. One part is the prejudice, is the thought that um, they don't like a certain individual because of their the way they look, their physical characteristics, but it also has to have a component um, of some sort of power structure in that um, for racism to exist, there has to be um, not only that prejudice, but also a feeling of superiority, that one group is superior over another group. Um, and then that comes out in various different forms. There's the um, institutional racism, there's the interpersonal racism, and then there's internalized racism. When we talk about institutionalized racism or structural racism, we think about examples such as redlining, such as some neighborhoods, um, depending on the people that live there, might not be able to get loans, mortgage loans, or home improvement loans because of that particular area that they're living in. Whereas if they were, and, and most of those neighborhoods tend to be where people of color live, um, or even, you know, back in the earlier 1900s where people were immigrants would initially come to. Those would be districts that they would call redlining, where people could not get loans as components to green areas where it's easy for people to get loans. And those were usually, you know, people that were white um, or had, you know, um, uh, more middle class jobs or were looked more favorably upon by banks because they felt that they would be able to um, get their loans paid back in a reasonable time. So that's the uh, institutional component. Then you have the interpersonal racism, which would be things like um, uh, racist comments to somebody. Um, and it could be either, again, explicit or it could be um, in terms of what we would call microaggressions, whereas, you know, um, very demeaning comments might be made regarding a person's appearance or their look or their name or their accent or something like that. And it can be something that's kind of um, under the radar a little bit that somebody might not pick up. But when you hear that over and over again, it can be very demeaning and very demoralizing. So that's interpersonal racism. And a great example of the interpersonal racism would be the work that Jane Elliott did with her third graders. Um, she um, had a classroom of third graders. Um, and in order to teach them the lesson about um, discrimination and prejudice, she divided the class into those with brown eyes, into those with green, with blue eyes. 
And on the first day of her experiment, the children with blue eyes were given all kinds of privileges. They got extra time at recess. They um, got extra portions at lunchtime. Um, they were praised, you know, in the classroom for the work that they did. And the children with brown eyes um, had to wear a collar. Um, they were given less um, time on the playground. They were reprimanded more frequently during the school day. And by the end of that day, the children with brown eyes were just completely demoralized compared to those with blue eyes. The next day she flipped the switch and the children with brown eyes got the privileges and those with the blue eyes did not get the privileges. And the same uh, type of thing happened. And if you ever see um, the filming of this, I think it's called a class divided. It's just amazing how quickly these children were able to accept and internalize discrimination um, based on the color of eyes. And because that message came from uh, a beloved teacher that they knew, they trusted, and they, you know, really respected everything she said, how quickly that script flipped, that best friends weren't best friends anymore, and children that were buddies were fighting on the playground. It's just absolutely amazing. So how quickly children learn that lesson is a really frightening fact. So that's interpersonal racism. I was and just going to comment on, uh, I, at one of your meetings, mm-hmm. you played that and it was so painful to watch. I mean, it was visceral how awful the kids felt. Yes. I mean, it was just amazing. And, you know, one of the things she said is that they had um, sight reading cards. Um, And she said that on um, the first day with the brown eyed children, the day before, they were able to get through those cards like within minutes. And the second, when they were now the children that were not as smart, not as pretty, not as handsome, you know, they went, took a lot longer to get through that um, sight uh, word deck, which is just amazing. And we're just talking about hours of time of just being told that you're not good enough. I mean, that is just, it's just, it's frightening. Like I said, to see how, you know, people talk about children being sponges, how they received and internalized those messages is just absolutely frightening. And I really encourage everybody um, to, to watch that clip um, because it's just absolutely amazing. So that's the interpersonal racism. And then when we get to internalized racism, and that is the racism that an individual holds that could be, you know, towards them. The best example for that would be the black doll, uh, white doll experiments that were started off in the 1940s. It was done by uh, two clinical psychologists out of Columbia whose names I forget, unfortunately, but they had African-American children look at two dolls. One was a white doll, one was a black doll. They were completely um, similar except for the color of the skin. And they asked the children a series of questions. Uh, Which doll would you like to play with? Which is the pretty doll? Which is the ugly doll? Which is the mean doll? Which is the nice doll? And the majority of black children all listed um, the white dolls of having all the positive attributes and the black dolls of having all of the negative attributes. And that work was actually used in the court case Brown versus Education to dismantle um, segregation in school. The problem is, is that experiment had been replicated over and over and over again. And the last time I saw it was maybe about five or six years ago, and it's the same. And you have preschool black children thinking that the black dolls are ugly, 
that they're stupid, um, that nobody likes them, that they're mean, and the white dolls are pretty and they're smart and everybody likes them. And we're talking about three and four-year-olds. Again, like Jane Elliott's experiment, and with this experiment as well, it just shows you that the messages that children are receiving at such a young age can really impact their ability um, in terms of their self-esteem um, to do well. And when you are fed these messages from a young child onward, and nobody is doing anything to counteract those messages, it's no wonder between that and the legacy of this country of, you know, Jim Crow laws and voting rights and, you know, violence against, um, you know, people because they're not white, basically. It's just, you know, um, it's just amazing sometimes how well that certain people do given those circumstances. Well, and I think if you're not a person of color and haven't experienced those things, you just don't think about it. Uh, you know, when I've talked with folks and they've said, you know, I've been in a store and I know I'm being watched mm-hmm. or of course, you know, driving while being black, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, just by virtue of your skin color that you are more likely to be pulled over for, you know, not having a brake light that's working, something like that. And then, of course, things escalating. And, um, you know, most of us haven't had that experience. And so you don't even appreciate it. Although hopefully with what's happening, people are talking more. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's the important part. I think that now people are recognizing that it it just means so much. And having allies in different organizations, different backgrounds and that type of thing, now recognizing that, wow, this is a problem, you know, it's just, um, it's, it's very helpful. I remember, um, so I have a son who's now 27. And I remember um, he came to meet me at work. He had, I think he had come in for his flu shot or something like that. And instead of coming back to my office to meet me, he said, you know what, I'll just, you know, it's nice outside. I'm just going to go into the parking structures and wait for you by the car. And, you know, he went about his business. Panic set in in me because I'm thinking, oh, my God, if security comes into the parking structure randomly, you know, during their watch and they see my son, who's about 5'10", with dreadlocks past his shoulders, who's wearing his clothes a little bit looser, you know, with uh, Timberland boots on, they're going to think he's up to no good and, you know, he might get into trouble. So I, you know, immediately packed up everything and rushed out to the parking structure. Hey, you know, come on. He's like, why? I thought you had another, you know, hour of work to do. No, no, no. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. You know, he was completely oblivious at that time. But I knew based on my history that, you know, he could easily be targeted um, for something, for doing something that he wasn't even thinking or contemplating of doing. Have you had experiences as a a black physician? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I remember several times, actually, but I remember very clearly I was a chief resident and uh, we had a new patient that uh, had come in and um, the senior resident had gone to lunch. I said, well, I'll go in and check the new patient just to make sure that they've got everything and I can go ahead and get it in orders. You go ahead and have lunch. And so I walked in the room. I had scrubs on. 
and I had my white coat and my stethoscope around my neck and a name badge. And I walked into the room and I think it was somebody that was coming in for like a 24-hour EEG or something like that. And so I walked into the room and it was a, a white family um, and uh, both parents are sitting on the bed with the child who's about 11 or 12. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're here. I said, oh, wonderful. They were like, yes, we've been waiting for somebody to take that um, cafeteria tray from the other bed because the smell is just making us nauseous and we were just waiting for somebody to come and take that away. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went and I took the tray and I put it out in the hallway and I came back in and I sat down and I opened my clipboard and I said, my name is Dr. Smitherman and I'm here to get some, you know, initial history so I can go ahead and get your child's orders written. And, you know, they were just embarrassed and like, oh my goodness, we didn't know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I don't know how you didn't know. I mean, I have a white coat and scrubs and a stethoscope, but we're going to move on beyond that right now because right now the important thing is to make sure your child is taken care of. And for me and, you know, and my husband, you know, um, is an internist and even in medical school, he and another African-American classmate were frisked at gunpoint in the main corridor of the um, hospital because there was uh, some rumor of um, some lab equipment being stolen. They had their name badges on, and they had their name badges on. They had their backpacks, you know, filled with books. But they were assumed because they were African American that they were again up to no good. So you live with those experiences, you know, and so um, it's just it just becomes a part of who you are. So that now, you know, again, if my son is going somewhere, I'm thinking you know, like, oh my goodness, is he going to be able to get home safely? You know, it'd be one thing we live in Detroit. So he was visiting friends in Detroit. Oh, I know you're going to be okay. But if he's like, well, you know, I have to work on this assignment and, you know, my classmate lives out in Birmingham. I said, okay, I'll drive you. <laughs> you don't drive. I'm going to drive you. And I will even go to the Starbucks around the corner and wait until you're done. And then I will drive you back home. And it's like, mom, what? no, no, it's okay. You know, again, because of knowing my history and again, trying to protect your kids as much as possible, you try to do that. And even though I tried to protect him, I was not always able to protect him. And he's got stories upon stories upon stories of being pulled over, of being his car being searched, um, having the police bring the canine uh, patrol out to search a car um, just for, you know, going to visit his girlfriend who lived in a different community, that type of thing. So um, it is real. So as an African-American physician or just person, you are always looking around, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it can be um, it can be stressful when they talk about racism as an adverse childhood experience or contributing to toxic stress. It is it's just something that you just have to live with on a daily basis. I'm so sorry that that has happened. It is, it just seems so hard to believe. And yet, of course, it happens all the time. I was really struck by the, uh, the video, I think it's on YouTube, um, about the talk. Yes. You know, those of us that are not of color have no frame of reference for that. And mm -hmm. Every time I see it, I cry um, when I see those little children putting their hands up. Um, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. But I think it's important that we see that and think about it and be mindful because nothing will change if nothing changes. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, with those videos, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that 
you know, those are um, conversations that are happening at home in the kitchen, you know, around the kitchen table. Um, And so um, whether it's um, an African-American family or a Muslim family or an immigrant family or a family who has a child with transgender, as parents, we want to protect our children and we try our best to kind of let them know what's out there in that world, because we don't want them to be blindsided. And that's part of racial literacy. You know, again, just, you know, preparing our children for what they might encounter in the world. Um, it's interesting because I practice in Detroit and Detroit's 80% African-American-ish, about 80%. Most of the children um, that I see are, you know, within schools in, in the Detroit district, either charter schools or um public schools. And so, you know, there's not that much of a, um, I mean, there's some, but not as much as um, my patients that go to some of the private prep schools. And for them, you know, some of the conversations are kind of interesting um, in terms of um, how they perceive, um, you know, um, interactions with teachers or interactions with other students and that type of thing. So one of the things I would really recommend for um, pediatricians is get to know where your patients are going to school and ask them about it. Um, Because, you know, you might be surprised or you might kind of get a little complacent. Oh, everybody's the same in that, you know, in that district or that area, they're probably fine, but maybe not. And I think we probably are reluctant or hesitant to ask that question um, because if somehow, if you point it out, for example, as an African-American child in a mostly white school, how is that for you that somehow that that's not okay to say that? Yeah, it can be interesting. I, I, I grew up in that type of environment, actually. The neighborhood I grew up in was African-American, but my sisters and I all went to private schools and we've had several um, instances where we might've been the only or one of two or three in a classroom um, uh, uh, students of color. And because we did it at such a young age, we were able to kind of navigate and negotiate two worlds, you know, like so many other students do, whether it's, you know, again, because their parents might be immigrants and hold a lot of strong traditions at home. But when they go out into the world, they try their best to assimilate with whatever the majority is. And, you know, my sisters and I definitely had to do that. But when incidences did come up, it was, you know, sometimes we didn't bring it up to our parents because we didn't want to cause trouble. And I can understand how even nowadays a student might not want to bring attention to those situations, at least, you know, before the summer. I think now that people are a little bit more aware and people are asking or if something happens and other people call out, hey, that was not fair. What happened to you? I think that now, people, you know, students are going to be a little bit more apt to disclose it and and talk about what's happening. But I think the fear is, again, you know, back in the day, you know, if I were going to say, you know, so-and-so said, called me a name, or I think the teacher was not being fair for whatever reason, you know, there's a fear of repercussion because things that always get worse, whether it's on the school bus or the playground or how you're graded. Right, right. Well, and in thinking about asking about are you okay? We ask people all kinds of intimate questions. Like, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you doing drugs? Are you sexually active? You know, we ask these intimate questions and perhaps not asking about 
in your experience, have you, you know, has there been any, you know, anything that's happened to you that feels like racism Mm -hmm. and that maybe that's okay for those of us who aren't physicians of color to be asking those questions? I think so. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if you might not get a straight answer initially, because again, um, trust has to be built. Now, if there's somebody that you've known since they were young and you've been their pediatrician all the way and they become of age, I think, you know, that trust over years have, has been built. And so, you know, it would be the same like bullying questions, you know, um, you can, you know, has anybody made fun of you, made fun of your name or this, that, or the other, um, you know, you can, you know, you can ask, well, you know, have you ever felt that somebody was making fun of you because of your race or your ethnicity or your hair texture or your skin color or something like that? I think that, you know, first meeting, maybe you might not get an answer, but I think with that um, relationship, that patient physician relationship over time, you might get some uh, answers. Um, and because even, you know, within the last school year, there have been children that have been suspended because of how they wore their hair or children not able to march in graduations because they wore um, a face mask that said Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's still incidents upon incidents upon incidents. And it's okay to say, hey, you know, I was, I heard on the news about this, you know, you know, student that was expelled because, you know, they wore, you know, dreadlocks, you know, I mean, what do you think about that? You know, that type of thing. And if you bring it up, you know, in a, in a nice, you know, collaborative um, type of um, um, atmosphere, I think you might get some more information from your patients. I like that approach. I sometimes also think about using, you know, this may not have happened to you, but I know for some of my patients, Mm -hmm. they've had these experiences. Is that ever, have you ever had anything like that happen? Mm -hmm. And that sometimes can be a way to open the door for conversation because, you know, I'll be honest, a lot of that, I just never even thought to include it. I did start asking some of my Hispanic patients Mm-hmm. when I knew them well about their parents being undocumented. And yeah. we're, because especially with all the immigration stuff, you know, in 2016, mm-hmm. are you ever afraid for your parents? And boy, did that unleash some stuff. I mean, oh, I bet, yeah. terrified, you know, that ICE was going to come and take their parents or take them. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I just didn't even think to ask until it became a thing when it was brought to light. And perhaps that's what's happening now is this is being brought to light and we can't just ignore it anymore. I mean, it's just unconscionable to do so. Exactly. I think that now the blinders are off, you know, I think there's no excuse, you know, and you know what, um, you know, people of color um, have, you know, these experiences aren't really new for us, but the fact that they are now, um, they're being videotaped and people are becoming more aware, you know, just having, you know, again, knowing that someone else has our back is very important. Um, And the other concern is that, you know, um, people of color might be worried about sharing their experiences, like in the, in the workplace, for example, or that type of thing of being um, judged or, or, yeah, judges being oversensitive. You know, if I remember reading a book about two women, uh, a black woman who was a nurse who was um, 
in, in a lawsuit, um, a, a somebody from legal aid who was a white young lawyer uh, wanted to hang around with her for a day just to get that experience. So they're walking through Target and the white woman just, you know, pulls a um, bottle of water from the cooler and just starts opening it and drinking it before they get to the cash register counter. And the, you know, the black woman's looking at like, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, and she's like, if I did that, security would be on me, you know, in a minute. And I'm like, what, what? I'm going to pay for it up front. What does it matter? Does, you know, what difference does it matter? I mean, you know, so, you know, the fact that people are now willing to kind of see what is going on on, on a day-to-day basis and now say something about it, you know, um, I think that's also very healthy. There have been studies um, from the bystander effect with people witnessing bullying and discrimination and that type of thing and felt that they didn't weren't able to say anything about it and internalizing that and getting sick from that. I think that now that people are like, well, hey, that's not fair and actually speaking out is healthy for the for humanity, basically. Well, and I think, you know, you're often as a bystander, I know I was at a gas station recently and there was a a black woman who the police were there by her car. And I just looked over at her and I said, are you okay? And she just said, thank you. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But I I would never have thought to do that to just check in before. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a small thing, but you know, I felt like it meant something to her. And you know, that is a situation that could have blown up for possibly, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the, I don't know, remedies is not quite a big enough word, but so, you know, when we talk about equity, diversity, inclusion, and how we can apply that in our personal space, Mm -hmm. in our practices, and then in our institutions and communities, Mm -hmm. what can, what can we do to be better? So I think one is just starting with your personal journey kind of seeing where you are and trying to, you know, educate yourself. Uh, One of the things that um, is often recommended is the implicit association test um, out of Harvard. Um, And, you know, it's got, it's got some controversy, you know, but if anything, and basically what the test does, it looks at implicit bias and, you know, there's a series of pictures that are shown and you, you ascribe, you know, even negative or positive words to those pictures for the racial, um, implicit association test, you know, you have black faces and white faces, and then you start off with, you know, black being good and white being bad, and then it flips on you. And that's when everybody just, oh my goodness, you know, um, um, you're, you're on a keyboard usually, and you're using, you know, a finger to type, you know, in, you know, or a letter that as- associates either positive or negative traits based on that picture. And there's various other implicit association tests. There's one based on weight. There's one on for gender. I mean, there's all different kinds of, of, of ones. Um, so um, the results will kind of give you an idea as to whether or not you have an implicit bias um, for the racial one, either um, towards uh, a positive um, bias towards white um, or black or a negative bias towards black or white. Then again, you know, even though it's been validated, there's been a lot of controversy about it. Even with that controversy, though, I still think everybody should take that just to kind of get an idea, because even if you think, oh, 
I'm the least biased person in the world. It might uncover a couple of things. And if anything, if it gets you to kind of sit back and go, well, let me think a little bit more about this. You know, let me think about some experiences I had, you know, that might kind of uh, agree with this, you know, outcome that I've got. So once you've done that, if anything, if, if it makes you kind of sit, then it's time to kind of read a little bit more, educate yourself. Um, there's lots of really good resources out there. One of my um, favorite resources is a YouTube series called um, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Um, and it's uh, Emmanuel Acho, who leads this. I think it was a football player. But he's got people that just kind of come in um, to a safe space, and they're allowed to ask him anything and everything about, you know, his experiences as a black man. And he honest, he answers them very honestly. It's a very um, low key. Um, it's a very inclusive kind of environment that he's trying to um, engage people with. And it's just kind of nice to kind of hear about his experiences and what he's gone through and answer questions in a non-threatening manner. And, you know, in his uh, approach, there's no stupid question. You can ask, you know, anything, um, you know, so that's really good. Um, there's a couple of other really good things to kind of look at as well. There's a series of, um, of uh, videos and clips and articles that I've uh, given to you, Leah, um, as, as some resources to kind of read, um, I think that are really good. There've also been a couple of really good editorials. Um, Bernard Dreyer has written a couple of really good ones in um, pediatrics, for example, uh, talking about uh, systemic racism within this country and how as pediatricians, we really need to take a stand. Uh, which I, I think was very well written um, as well. So I think personal journey is 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 important to start. And then once we do that, you know, then we think about how to approach our our patients at our practice in in the clinical environment. Um, and again, there's a lot of really good resources for parents. Um, there's Embrace Race, which is a great website that's got um, books, that's got blogs, that's got all kinds of information uh, for parents to talk about uh, race with their children. And it's not just only, you know, children of color. There's a few um, parents that write in their blog that are white parents that have adopted children of color and some of the experience that they've had as well, um, and some tips and trips and, and uh, um, you know, for them to, to reach out to families to kind of help guide them uh, through the process of raising not only children of color, but anti-racist. Um, and then HealthyChildren.org also recently this summer um, put out a really nice um, article about raising children to be um, anti-racist as well. So there's lots of really good resources. There's two books um, that I think are really helpful. One is a kid's book about racism, and it um, talks about, um, it can be shared with basically preschool children, and it talks about, you know, how we're all different shades, all different backgrounds, and how sometimes because of the way you look or the color of your skin, you might have some uh, um, negative um, interactions with people. And what it does, it just kind of opens the door to have children just ask questions, um, which I think is important. And it can be shared with all children, not just children of color. Another really good book I like is um, Something Happened in Our Town. And it was written by uh, three women that are PhD psychologists. And it describes an event that happened in a town uh, where an African-American person was shot by the police and how that incident was discussed in two different families, one black family, one white family, um, how it was um, addressed 
to the children, which I thought was really good. And then, you know, how what the children learned from their families, they were able to take that and translate into a situation that happened in school the next day on the playground. Um, So again, those are um, really good resources. I think it's important also to recognize that there is a When you talk about development, there are developmental steps with racial identity. Um, So when you think about young children, preschoolers, um, that's the age that they're classifying things by color and by gender and, you know, by age and that type of thing. And so, um, again, um, you know, giving those positive messages to children, I think is very important at that age when they become a little bit older they think about, you know, especially towards the, you know, middle school years, um, that's when some prejudices might start to happen. Uh, that's when cliques are starting to form. You see higher incidences of bullying. And you want to start to ask the question why, especially if, you know, they're seeing things on television or talking about things that are happening in school, you know, start asking the questions, well, why do you think that happened? Or why do you feel that way? Or, you know, what do you think um, is going on with that? Just to kind of get their idea and try to direct them around, you know, um, more positive messaging and um, the importance of fairness and trying to um, treat everybody, you know, as you would want to be treated. Um, and then in the adolescent years, that's the second peak again where uh, prejudice can occur. And just, you know, being open by that time, you know, children are pretty much set in their ways. They know their likes and their dislikes. But again, as situations happening, if you're watching television together or if you're seeing things in the media, in the media, you know, oh, you know, what did you think about that? And, you know, um, you know, do you think if you were in that situation, how would you have handled it? Or do you know anybody that's had to deal with something like that. I think keeping those lines of communication are very, very important within the clinical setting. Um, and then and as pediatricians, I tell, I would tell my former residents, you know, as a pediatrician, whether you like it or not, you are A, a leader in your community and B, you are a child advocate. And it's just, you know, part of our job. And I think it's important when we see things happening, you know, when we have opportunities to write letters to our legislative leaders, uh, to participate in advocacy day, um, when we're seeing trends within our practices, like, hey, you know, we're having increased levels of lead, or we're seeing more iron deficiency anemia, or, you know, I'm seeing, you know, more, um, you know, unhealthy habits in this particular population to kind of get down to like, why is this happening? Instead of just letting it continue, you know, it's okay to say, wait a minute, let's stop. Is there something systemic going on here that I have to investigate a little bit more and um, then, you know, address um, with, you know, the community as a whole? Are there some toolkits or anything as far as like actually making over your practice? I mean, I think about making sure that you have a diverse staff and being intentional about that. Um, I remember I was in an organization and noticing that there were hardly any women in leadership positions. There were like 13 leadership positions and there was one woman and I asked the question cause I'm a squeaky wheel right. and, and it was met with um, kind of bewilderment, like, Oh, I didn't even notice. And, you know, we've approached, um, we put out an ad, but none of the women applied. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, that's really not enough. You have to be intentional and ask them to the table because mm-hmm. 
you know, women are often not used to having that opportunity. And so they don't even think that I should apply. And I'm wondering if there's some things like that that would apply to this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that whatever the organization is should reflect the setting in which it is in. So if you're in a practice, for example, and if you're in an area like a low income area or something like that, the people in that practice, there should be some representation of the people of that particular community. I think that's important um, on so many different levels, you know, whether it's your, um, if you're in a practice, your office staff or your MAs or your clinicians, you know, or just somebody there so that, you know, families, you know, would be able to at least see a face that would be like, oh, somebody's going to understand, you know, what I'm going through right now. Or, I mean, because even in my practice, I've had, um, families, parents disclose information to my office staff prior to me because of a variety of different reasons. And if you think about, you know, each community is so diverse within itself. So within the African-American community, I might have some families that the parents might not have had much of an education that might feel that I might judge them because of that. Um, You know, oh, she's a doctor, you know, so, you know, she's on this level and I'm not quite there. Um, So I've had them approach, you know, MAs or even my receptionists to say, well, you know, actually we've been living in a shelter for the last couple of months and, you know, we're really kind of embarrassed about it, you know, and then, you know, my receptionist would bring that to me and then I would approach it, you know, and just, you know, give them a hug and, you know, what can I do, you know, let me help you, you know, give you some resources so that, you know, we can get you out of there, you know, those types of things. So I think that, you know, having somebody within the organization that the families that are using that resource can relate to can be so important. Yeah. Someone that looks like me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Lynn, I really appreciate your time. And this was such a rich conversation. I'm busy taking a lot of notes here. And I don't know that I can do it justice. You also listed several different resources and books. And I'll put that information in the show notes. So Mm -hmm. if anyone is looking for links to um, some of the things that Lynn talked about, we'll have that for you. Is there anything else that you would like to say to listeners before we close? Um, I think that, I think that first of all, that now that everybody's a little bit more aware of what's been going on regarding discrimination and racism in this country, I think it now behooves us all to take a stand. Um, And I think the more I see people doing that, and I am seeing that more and more and more, um, the more um, uh, hopeful. I, I feel in the, long, in the long run that we're going to make some really significant strides in really trying to make a difference. And um, especially for our children, like I said, they are so vulnerable at such a young age. And it's just so, so important for us to really, you know, wrap around our arms around all of them and give them all, you know, the self-esteem that they need to grow up and be very, you know, proud of who they are, no matter where their parents come from or their grandparents or what their parents do and just, you know, be able to stand up and say, I am somebody and I'm proud to be here. Well, thank you. I think that's a lovely place to stop. Again, thank you for your time and appreciate the work that you're doing out there in the world. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. What a rich conversation and so much information to unpack. 
it may be necessary to go back and listen to this podcast episode again, because Lynn just left us with so much to think about. I'm going to try and leave you with just a couple of take home. But again, I'd encourage you to go back and listen again. So I think it's important that we understand the differences between bias, prejudice, and discrimination and their impact on racism, which ultimately involves superiority and power over others. In order to combat racism, we have to look towards equity, diversity, and inclusion, and we have to be intentional about how we make change. It's important that we understand others' perspectives and the real-life experiences of people of color, especially African Americans. It's really important that we ask our families and children of color how they are experiencing racism, but in the context of trust. We might, for example, ask them about what they've seen or heard on TV or in their communities, and if it in any way is impacting them personally. You can also get at by asking, I know that other kids have had similar things happen to them. Has this been true for you? I think it's important to be curious. And then to make change, we have to look at interpersonal change, practice change, and organizational change. On the personal level, it's important that we educate ourselves. might include doing the implicit assessment test, reading and viewing videos, movies, YouTubes about racism. Practice level change, we need to really begin to provide materials for our families and invite diversity and inclusion in how we manage our practices. So it may mean the people that we hire, that it's often important for our children of color to see staff of color. It makes a difference for them. Organizationally and on a national level, we can write op-eds, we can participate in advocacy events, and always, if we see something, to say something. In the words of C.S. Lewis, Lynn quoted, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Thank you so much, Lynn, for joining me today. This was a really powerful conversation, and I think we're all thinking about what's going on in our country and just within ourselves as we struggle to confront our own biases. I certainly know I have my own, and it's hard to admit that, but important if we're going to make change. Thank you so much for your time and listening to the podcast today, and I hope you'll share this with others. Please go to the show notes. Uh, Lynn provided me with lots of resources, and I'd encourage you to look particularly at some of the YouTube videos that she mentioned. As always, be well, be safe, take care, and see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.